Good morning, church. It's been a long time, but I'm back. (laughs) I want to thank the uh, Levi for calling and inviting me to speak again. Uh, I want you to know that it's always a blessing from God for me to get up and speak from his word. Before we get started this morning, I want to tell you a little personal story about how God provides in our lives. Uh, A lot of you know that I'm a full-time Bible college student, and I'm also a full-time electrician. So what does that mean? I have zero spare time. So I don't have spare time to write sermons or do anything, really, anymore. Well, about three months ago, and my wife can attest to this because I told her about it when it happened, one night I went to bed, and I laid there, and I couldn't go to sleep. I was like, what's going on here? I'm tired. I want to go to sleep. God had a plan. He knew at some point I was going to need a sermon. And for three nights in a row, I did that. And I wrote this sermon in my head in those three nights with the help of God. And I told my wife about it. And she said, well, you better get it on paper before you forget it. (laughs) But anyway, it's amazing how God will provide. Okay, there was a salesman that came to church every Sunday, sat in the back row every Sunday. Well, this particular Sunday, he was having a hard time staying awake. And by midway through the sermon, he was pretty much out. Well, the preacher gets to the invitation. All of a sudden, this guy jumps up, runs up front. And the guy up front says, what is it the preacher said that made you do that? And he said, well, I heard something about a great commission. (laughs) Salesman, great commission, you get it? Okay. Okay. (laughs) I knew you'd catch on eventually. All righty. So the title of my message this morning is The Great Commission, Evangelism, and biblical discipleship. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28, verse 19. It's a verse we've all read a million times. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So let's describe, or let's define the word commission. Here's what the dictionary says. It's an instruction, command, or duty given to a a person or a group of people. Many of you know that in my previous career, I served in the Air Force Healthcare Service for many, many years. And what was our duty? What was our mission? To treat the sick and injured. What is our mission under the Great Commission? To find the sick and injured due to sin and to tell them about God's redemptive plan for all humanity. Through Jesus Christ. 
The Great Commission was Jesus' last words to the disciples and us. Take the gospel to the world and make disciples. It communicated his love for the world and gave the church her mission. Our commission from Jesus is not always treated as a command, but maybe a suggestion or a nice sentiment. Suppose we want to embrace our calling and commission as Christians. In that case, we must be painfully honest and admit that many Christians have already lost their passion or maybe they have never been challenged to embrace it as a command at all. I want to give you some facts that reflect that in the churches in America. Churches that used to be vibrant, they're closing their doors. A hundred million people in the U.S. have no contact with the church. Of this group, 13 to 15 million express a commitment to Christ and accept Him as Lord and Savior. That leaves 85 million Americans out there unchurched and unbelieving. Chester and Timmis wrote an article on the decline and fall of Christian America, stated that the number of adults in the U.S. who did not attend church has nearly doubled since 1991. This same report said that almost 3,500 churches close their doors every year. And attendance in 80% of the remaining churches is stagnant or declining. That gives us a pretty good indication of something's not working out. George Barna, in an article that he wrote in 2018 entitled Translating the Great Commission, in this article, over 51% of churchgoers don't know the term the Great Commission. And 10% of millennials don't know what it, what it means. So we're missing the boat somewhere in here when we're, we're teaching. So if the church has significantly abandoned or ignored the Great Commission, why is anyone surprised in this decline? Folks, if this were a fire, it'd be a five-alarm fire, and we need to get it fixed. We need to go back to Jesus' words and think about what he said when he said, Make disciples, make disciples, make disciples. So the mission of the Great Commission is, we're to be disciple multipliers until he returns. It's very simple. That's our mission as Christians, to be disciple multipliers until he returns. So let me give you seven characteristics of the early church that reflect this. Now, if you want to flip to Acts, we're going to be going through several verses in Acts, chapters 1 through 4. Okay, number one. The early church surrendered itself to earnest prayer. We turn to Acts 1, verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day's walk from the city. 
When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. The reformer Martin Luther said this, To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. The Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Number two, the early church ministered through intentionality, engaging people daily. Turn to Acts 2, verses 46 and 47. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. They were not afraid to meet with the unbeliever. The church is to be lived in the community, not kept to itself. Number three, the early church depended on the Spirit's power. Start in Acts 1, verses 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We go to chapter 2, verse 29. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God, what God had promised him on oath and that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. But he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God had raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Chapter 4, verses 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, before we be called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, and you and all of Israel. Verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God. Boldly. The Great Commission can only be fulfilled if you are living in the Holy Spirit. Number four, the early church presented a consistent message. Let's go back to Acts 4, verses 18. I'm sorry, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, we, if we are being called to account to do it today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and now being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, 
but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The early apostles gave a consistent message and never compromised the truth about Jesus. The church's primary focus should not be on the attendance, but staying true to the gospel of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Number five, the early church possessed authentic boldness. Go to chapter 4, verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerful at work in all of them. They spoke boldly boldly in the Holy Spirit, not worrying what others might think. Number six. The early church displayed inspiring courage. Acts 4, verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him. You be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. The early church was willing to die for their faith. The modern church is not even ready to live for that faith. Number seven, the early church knew what they believed and fully embraced their responsibility to share the gospel regardless of the cost. The early church example shows that they fully embraced their commissions at all costs, and we are to do the same. So now we've got an idea of the Great Commission. But how do we get there? What comes to mind when I say the word evangelism? Maybe Billy Graham? Maybe tent revivals? Maybe television evangelist? I do have to take a, a quick poll here. How many of when you were, I know when I was a kid, we went, we called it door knocking or calling. Anybody in the room ever done that before? <laughs> we did that about twice a week. We would all get to the, gather at the church, and we'd basically go door to door and tell them about Jesus. I don't know that it would be safe to do that in this day and age, because there's a lot of wackos out there. But we used to do it all the time. As kids, we did it. I mean, we were little kids, and we'd go door to door and do that. We're going to talk about evangelism. We're going to talk about personal Evangelism. What is evangelism? Sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. 
So we're going to talk about what personal evangelism is, but I'm going to give you some things that it's not. First, number one, it's not a choice. Evangelism is not a personal choice. Evangelism is a biblical command. We just talked about it in Matthew 28. Number two, evangelism is just not passing on information. It's not just sharing biblical truths about Christ, but it's validation to a testimony of a changed life. Number three, a spiritual gift. Evangelism is not listed as a spiritual gift in Scripture. It's meant for all believers, not just for the preacher, not just for the elders. It's meant for everyone. We are all to fulfill the Great Commission individually. It's not just something you do. Evangelism shouldn't be considered a duty to God. Like we've got to check off that box. Well, we evangelized today, so I can check that box off, and I'm good. It should be an expression of our love for Jesus and what he's done for us. It's not in competition with discipleship. Evangelism, it leads to a spiritual conversion, always precedes the discipleship process. Each process is complete. Once the one being discipled learns to multiply their witness by sharing Christ with other unsaved people. It's not based on your personality. You can't say, well, oh, I'm shy. I can't talk to people. That doesn't work. Your personality doesn't matter. Remember what I told you before I started speaking about how God will provide? God will always provide. You know the story of Moses, when God told him, you're going to go see Pharaoh, and he said, but I can't speak well. Don't worry about it. I got you covered. God will provide. Evangelism is not the same as missions. Evangelism is a vital part of missions. It's only possible to do missions by intentionally doing evangelism. Evangelism evangelism is not acting arrogant or superior. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. A humble heart and not a know-it-all attitude is what God requires. Not to be silenced by fear. If I was to ask everyone in the audience today, what's probably the biggest hindrance to going out and speaking to the unbeliever? Would it not be fear? Maybe fear of failure? Let's see what the Bible says about that. 2 Timothy 1, 7-8. The Apostle Paul states, For God did not give you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. Human fear is natural, But no fear exists in the Holy Spirit. And finally, evangelism is not a theological dilemma. Put it bluntly, theology without evangelism is not Christian theology. Now I want to talk to you today about 
one aspect of evangelism. I mean, I could talk for days about evangelism. There's so many aspects to it. But today we're going to talk about farming. I know we got some farmers in the audience. So we're going to talk a little bit about farming, but not crop farming. We're going to talk about spiritual farming. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 6. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God's been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. In this uh, analogy, Paul and Apollos, they're the harvest workers along with God. The hearts of the Corinthians, who this letter was written to, were the field of the soil. And the increase of the harvest is the results of the Gospels producing new life in the heart of a lost person. So let's talk about a few truths about the spiritual harvest. Number one. The harvest is not a process. Excuse me. The harvest is a process, not an event. Any of the farmers in here can tell you that the harvest is not an event. It's a process that goes on for quite some time. More than one element is involved in the harvest. Someone must plant. Someone must water. And God makes it come to life, grow, and bear fruit. Different people can play different roles in the harvest. Every aspect is equally important. So let's talk about the first step. Plow the fields through prayer. Manette Drumwright, the former director of International Prayer Strategy, once observed, In our churches, we spend more time praying to keep saints out of heaven than we do praying lost people into heaven. Let me repeat that. We spend more time praying to keep saints out of heaven than we do praying to get lost people into heaven. Everybody know what I mean by that? So when was the last time you prayed intentionally For an unsaved person by name? Or when did the church intentionally keep a list of unsaved individuals and pray for them by name? It's not a practice you'll see in churches across this country. Prayer will plow the field of the lost person's heart. Number two, you have to plant the seed. What's the seed? The seed's the gospel. The word about Christ. Death, burial, and resurrection. Let's turn to Matthew 13. Verse 
you know, I got like a yellow line down my Bible. I don't know what that's all about. Okay, let's go to verse 3. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, the modern farmer might say, well, that's sloppy sowing. But you got to realize uh, they didn't have all the equipment that we have today. Don't worry about planting too much seed. God has got a full supply. It never ends. Let's turn to uh, verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The second seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last for a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good ground refers to someone who hears the word, understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. God gives the increase. Number four, the fields are ready to harvest. Let's turn to John 4, 35. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvest, a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. Jesus wanted them to realize that as long as we are willing to go to all types of people, We will always find souls that are ready for the gospel. Let's talk about what spiritual farming is. It's an investment in a process. If you think you're going to talk to somebody once or twice and it's all going to be good, that may not be the case. It may draw on and on and on, but you have an investment in that communication and that connection with that individual.
that unbeliever. Spiritual farming is very time-consuming. Spiritual farming is hard work. But spiritual farming is worth the wait. Let's turn to Luke 15, 7. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So now that we have the harvest of the souls, what's the next step? How about training those new believers to be disciple multipliers? Basic tenets of disciple-making have changed to accommodate a new edition of discipleship in America. The first one we're going to talk about is called personal enrichment. If I say personal enrichment to you, what does that mean? That means that you learn to pray, you learn to know God's will, you learn your spiritual gift, you raise your children in a godly home, you read self-help books on how to be a good Christian man or a good Christian woman, and that's all you do. It never evolves back to the field where you are bringing in new souls to Christ. It's all about me and my life and how I live. Let's go back to the Great Commission. Make disciples, make disciples, make disciples. That's what it's all about. You ought to know as a Christian it's never about you and me. It's about the other. And in this case, it's the unbeliever. That's what our, our whole role is as a Christian. Jesus lays it out in Matthew 28. Second one we're going to call biblical discipleship. And it's cyclical, we're going to call it. The diagram where you look in the book on this, the first one is called linear, personal enrichment. It's just a line like this. Throughout your life, forever and ever. Biblical discipleship shows circles. Showing how evangelism and discipleship are just an ongoing process. It never stops. Instead of focusing on biblical knowledge, which we do in personal enrichment, and I'm not saying biblical knowledge is not important. It is essential as a a Christian. But biblical discipleship focuses on teaching Christians to be multipliers of the gospel. I'm getting a lot of strange looks out there. But that's really what our purpose is. We are to be disciple multipliers. It's plain and simple. It's a quote from Jesus. He told us. Discipleship can only be done by faithfully connecting disciples to the Great Commission. I want to tell you a story about one of my evangelists. Evangelism professor. He normally does a survey 
of all the freshmen that come in to the course, his evangelism course. And out of 400 students, he said 80% didn't know what the Great Commission was, didn't know what their role was. And this is a Christian university. And I'm thinking, well, we're dropping the ball somewhere if these kids coming into college don't know what the Great Commission is. That's the basis of everything in Christianity. Since the goal of discipleship should always be to glorify God and reproduce more disciples, evangelism and discipleship, they depend on each other. Evangelism is more than seeking decisions. Sharing the gospel and discipleship is more than simply enriching the mind without igniting the multiplication process, making more disciples. I mean, you can have all the knowledge you want, but if you don't go out and make more disciples, what good does that knowledge do you? What do you, th- what do you think the, the judgment's going to be? Well, you know, I told you what to do. I told you to go make more disciples, and what did you do? Did you make more disciples? Or did you do what you wanted to do? Neither evangelism nor discipleship is complete unless they are intentionally cycled together to lead the person evangelized into becoming a reproducing follower of Christ. Let's go to Matthew 10. I'm getting the same looks that I used to get in the Sunday school class from a lot of folks out in the audience. Am I like breaking that glass ceiling or something? One thing you know about me is I will always speak the truth. It may not be what you want to hear, but I will speak the truth from the Bible. And that's what I do. Okay, Matthew 10, verse 16. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings and witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what you have to say or how to say it, at that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So what did Jesus do here with that? He gave them a crash course in evangelism and discipleship on their own. He said, go. You're going to face all kinds of obstacles. Don't worry about it. But what did it do for them? It matured them spiritually. So don't think you have to have a college degree on the Bible or anything else to be a a disciple maker. That's not what it's all about. Everybody knows God's story, don't you? It's got four parts. You can pick a part and tell that part. You got creation, you got fall, you got redemption, and you got restoration. Pick a part you know. Find some verses you know. You can use the Roman roads theory. There's a lot of things out there you can do to evangelize to people. 
Saying you don't know the Bible is not an excuse. Biblical discipleship is incarnational. And personal enrichment is institutional. As the early church showed, biblical discipleship is in the community of unbelievers. While institutional is locked within the church's walls. Too many churches want to say, "Eh, we're not going to go out there and try to bring people in. We'll just let them come to us. That don't work. It just don't work. Unless you're a church that's all about entertainment. You know, if you're playing, you know, you got steel guitars and, you know, rock singers and stuff. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to attract people in. But that's not what it's about. The early church, they went to the community. They didn't wait for the community to come to them. And that's what we're called to do. Go to the community. Don't be behind our walls of the church and feel like we're secure and we're good in God and we're good to go. You might be thinking wrong. So, in summary, I don't think you guys can take any more because I got some eyeballs about ready to blow out of their head, it looks like. We talked about the command as followers of Christ to be disciple multipliers. That's the Great Commission. We talked about how we do that. That's through evangelism. The gospel, or the good news of Jesus Christ. And finally, we talked about how we train the new believer to become disciple multipliers. Our mission as followers of Christ is straightforward. Be disciple multipliers and prepare the new believers to be disciple multipliers. To God's glory and to build up His kingdom. Now, I'm going to throw out a challenge here to the church today. You can take it or you can leave it. In the next 30 days, identify one unbeliever in your sphere of influence. And if you don't have a sphere of influence, maybe it's a relative that doesn't believe or a friend, or you don't think you have a sphere. We all have spheres of influence. And intentionally pray for them by name. And then ask the church to intentionally pray for them by name. Prayer is the most powerful tool that the Christian has in their toolbox. But we have to use it for the unbelievers. That's what it's all about. Now, everything I've talked about this morning is only possible under one circumstance. And that is the vertical relationship between you and God. If your vertical relationship is not right, your horizontal relationships will never work. You'll never get anything done. Because you're not doing it in the Spirit. You're doing it on your own. So make this relationship right, and this one will work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come to your house and study from your word. And let us all know that 
You know, our mission here is to make disciples, to build up your kingdom, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Let us be aware of that. Let us be carrying that through. Then make more disciples. Pass it on from generation to generation to generation. We thank you for your son and the sacrifice that he made for us. Makes it possible for us to receive the gift of salvation through our faith in Jesus Christ. All these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.